Good morning. This morning we are continuing our series in Luke's Gospel, The Coming of the King. Last week we looked at John the Baptist. We looked at his call, what he was calling his people towards, these crowds that have come out, these crowds that came out into the desert to see him. And today we're moving on to the next narrative section. It begins with Jesus' baptism and moves into a, uh, a cavern of names. To throw in the cave theme, I guess. Uh, so anyway, would you please follow along with me as I read? I'll be reading from the ESV, Luke 3, 21 through 38. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kozum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mina, the son of Mathath, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surig, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahiliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for training in all righteousness. And Lord, I ask that as we dive into this text today, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to understanding how, how we can even apply a text like this, why it's even in the scriptures. And Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds so that we would walk away knowing uh, that just as Jesus Christ is the answer to our lives, so too is he the answer to the story of redemption that we find here in this text. So we ask this all in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, 
When we read a text like this and others like it in Scripture, there are roughly 25 genealogies in the Old Testament, including this one and Matthew's version in the New Testament. We'll talk about the distinction between those two shortly. But if you're anything like me, when we come across a text like this, I I know I don't spend a whole lot of time meditating on it, right? (laughs) If you're anything like me, once we get through all the names, which is a daunting challenge in itself, we're kind of left wondering, well, what now? What are, we, what are we supposed to do with a text like this? How in the world can genealogy speak to, speak to my life, speak to the lives of our church or our loved ones? A list of names roughly in Luke's genealogy, roughly half of which occur nowhere else in Scripture, is not the easiest to meditate or apply. Meditate on or apply, is it? But this genealogy and others like it are, in fact, important Because they show, among other things, how God's hand has been at work from the very beginning, intentionally crafting the story of redemption that would culminate in Jesus Christ. Phil Riken, who's a PCA teaching elder, president of Wheaton College, he told a story that I read this past week, found it was an interesting and relevant story. He told a story of a Wycliffe Bible translator, You're familiar with Wycliffe organization, they go into different places around the world and they translate the scriptures into the native tongue of wherever they're at. So he tells this story of this Wycliffe translator who's been assigned to Papua New Guinea, um, and he's, he rises in Papua New Guinea and begins the work of translating for the native people there. And he starts with the Gospel of Matthew. And if you know the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew opens with a long list, not as quite as long as this one, but a long list of names, another genealogy. And as the translator's looking at these names, he's, he says to himself, you know, I just don't want to bog down these native peoples with a list of names. I mean, that's the very first thing they're going to read in scripture. I don't want to do that. So he actually skips chapter one and he begins his translation work in chapter two. And he begins the translation work and ends up translating through the entirety of Matthew's gospel. And when he finishes Matthew's gospel, he says, you know what, I, maybe I'll go back and I'll translate chapter one. So he gathers the native men around him who were helping him in the translation work, helping him understand the language. And he asks them, okay, so how can I say, how can I say begot? Because in Matthew's version, Matthew says, you know, um, Abraham begot Isaac and so forth. He uses the word, the, the language begot. So he asks the native, how, how can I say that? And they come to a conclusion on how they can translate that well. And after the men, the men help him through the translation work, he begins to then read the names to them. And he begins, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And after he gets through about six names, the translator is sensing that there's a lot of excitement in the room. The native men ask, they they stop him and they ask, wait, wait a second, do you mean that these men that you're talking about are real men? And he goes, well, yeah, I mean, that's what I've been telling you all along. And the men in excitement respond, well, that's what we do too. We keep track of our genealogy and our ancestry too. We just thought that the stories that you were telling us were all white man stories. But you're saying that, that Abraham and Isaac, these were all real men in history? The translator goes, well, yeah, that's, that's what I've been telling you all along. And the men responded, the native men responded, we didn't know that, but now we believe Phil Riken concludes his story writing, that night they gathered the village together and said, listen to this. And they read the first chapter of Matthew. And that chapter was a key for belief within the tribe. 
You see, friends, when we read Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy, we're met with the breadth and the scope of God's plan. God didn't arbitrarily just throw Jesus onto the scene to fix some historical problem. Rather, Jesus was part of God's plan of redemption from the very start. And all and from the very start of history, he moved his plan forward and he preserved a people. He made a covenant with David, with Abraham, and even with Adam. And the, despite the sins of his people, God moved his plan forward to culminate in Jesus Christ. God's people went through some tragically low points in their history, as this genealogy can attest. If we were to take a few of these names and just to do a case study on some of these names, we'd find that uh, within this story, there are some tragically low points, including the split of a kingdom, awful kings who made the people bow down to idols and even exile. But God would advance his plan of redemption through all of the mess and tragedy. And it's in this genealogy where we're met with the scope of redemption. But genealogies like this are also important because in order to really know someone and what they're about, we have to know where they come from. In many ways, friends, you and I are shaped more than we perhaps realize by our upbringing, by the places we come from, and even generational sin. And for some of us, those influences that have had a a major part in shaping us might not be good influences. In fact, they might be influences that we've been trying to escape from our whole life, influences that we don't even think about and we've been trying to fight against most of our lives. Others of us, though, might be pretty fond of the influences that have, that have had a part in shaping who we are and what we're about. But whatever category we fall into, a big part of who we are and what we're about has been influenced, inevitably so, by where we come from. So this brings us to this genealogy in our text this morning, where we find this long list of names, 77 names in total here. But this genealogy tells a story. And in fact, it tells two stories. First, this genealogy tells the story of what it means to be human, as we're all descended from Adam. Furthermore, if you're a Christian, this is the story of our covenant family. And in that sense, it's also our story. But second, this genealogy tells the story of redemption, how God would work throughout history to culminate this lineage, this line in Jesus Christ. So what I want us to see this morning is that Christ's baptism, and we'll look at Christ's baptism in this text a little bit later, but Christ's baptism and the genealogy to follow tell us two things. Simply put, it tells us who we are and it tells us who Jesus is. So first, Jesus' baptism and the genealogy to follow tells us who we are. But before we get there, there's a few important textual features to note about our genealogy, Luke's genealogy in particular. Remember, I said this at the outset, that the Gospels, they give us two genealogies. There's a genealogy in Matthew's text. Matthew begins his his Gospel with genealogy. And then in Luke's text, we also have genealogy that begins a little bit later in chapter 3, as we're looking at right now. And if we were to read both of these genealogies, Matthew's and Luke's, side by side, we'd very quickly realize that they're pretty different. They're different, somewhat different genealogies. 
some of these differences are, are pretty obvious. Well, Matthew's genealogy gives us 41 names. Luke's genealogy gives us 77 names. Luke's genealogy, genealogy gives us quite a bit more names. And while Matthew's gospel begins with Abraham and works its way forward to Jesus, Luke's genealogy begins with Jesus and works its way all the, back to, all the way back to Adam. And while Matthew's genealogy, as I said during that story, uses that term begot, Luke's genealogy uses sonship language, the, the son of. And, some, and something both of these genealogies have in common is that they're selective. In other words, even with the terms begot and son of, both genealogies don't require that each descendant is the direct biological offspring of the previous name. Both genealogies omit names here and there, and they even skip several generations throughout. But that's just how genealogies work. They're not doing anything different than what would have gone on uh, with other genealogies. Now, these differences between Matthew and Luke aren't problematic. They're merely differences that suit their structure and their overall, the overall purpose of each gospel writer. For instance, it would make sense for someone like Matthew to want to emphasize Abraham, because Matthew's gospel is known as uh, perhaps the most Jewish of all of the four gospels. So it would make sense for him to highlight the father of Israel, the father of the, the, the covenant people Israel. And it would make sense for somebody like Luke, who's known as sometimes the most Gentile of the gospel writers, to want to emphasize Adam, the, the father of humanity, we might say. <clears throat> So these differences aren't problematic, <clears throat> but very quickly we also find that there are differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's that appear at first glance to be somewhat problematic. For instance, whereas both Matthew and Luke list ancestry between David and Joseph, they list completely different ancestry with the exception of Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. And while Matthew names Jacob, as Joseph's father, Luke names Heli as Joseph's father. So what are we to make of these differences in genealogies? Who's wrong? Is anybody wrong here? Is Matthew wrong? Is Luke wrong? Are they both wrong? Are they both right? Well, these differences aren't at all insurmountable, and scholars have posited several different explanations or reasons why there are differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Some will say, for instance, that's what, that what is represented in Luke's genealogy is the genealogy of Mary, whereas what's represented in Matthew's genealogy is the genealogy of, of Joseph. Some will say that both genealogies represent Joseph's line, and one decides to emphasize Joseph and Jesus's natural lineage, and the other decides to emphasize Jesus's royal lineage. And some scholars uh, posit vice versa, and a number of other different scenarios. The point, though, is that these differences aren't at all insurmountable. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright even gives the example of a New Zealand people group called the Maori people, who, if you ask them, they're able to trace back their descendants over a thousand years. But if you ask each person for, the descent, for their descendants, they can give up to eight different genealogies, depending on the ancestor they want to highlight or depending on how much intermarriage has taken place in the group. And the differences between Matthew and Luke can be seen analogously church has been aware of these differences for over 2,000 years. They've given us many viable ways to understand the differences between these genealogies. So these differences are no reason to doubt the veracity of scripture or the veracity of the different genealogies that Luke and Matthew give to us. Nevertheless, whatever solution we choose to adopt 
however we choose to explain these differences, lest we lose the forest for the trees, the focus on Luke's genealogy is on Adam. Remember, it ends with Adam. The focus where Luke is driving us to is towards Adam. And Adam, we know from Scripture, from the opening of Genesis, is the first man, right? He was created directly from God. He was breathed to life by God. And as the first man, he was also given a unique calling. If you ever heard of the cultural mandate, the cultural mandate was the unique calling that was issued to Adam in Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28, I'll just read it. God says, God says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam's calling in the book of Genesis, the opening chapter, was he was called to be a priest and a king, essentially, in the Garden of Eden. If you think of the, if you can picture the Garden of Eden, it was picturesque of a primordial temple. It was, a, it was a, essentially a temple where Adam was called to serve as a priest. He was called to be a priest in that he was called to protect the Garden of Eden from unclean things. He was also called, like Israel's later priests, to be an expert in interpretation and application of God's word. So when the, when, uh, the serpent came later on to Eve and uh, Eve ended up misquoting God's word and what God really said, Adam should have stood up and Adam should have corrected that misinterpretation as a priest. Adam was also called to be a king in that he should have ruled and subdued and should have kicked the serpent out of the garden. Adam had a distinct calling Yet as we know from scripture, Adam failed in this calling, and as a result, the world was plunged into sin. So given that the foundational name in Luke's genealogy is Adam, when, we're, when, we, when we proceed back through every other name in the genealogy, Adam's story is like a black rain cloud that hovers over every other name in the text. In other words, when we proceed back through each individual in Luke's genealogy, the one thing each person has in common is that they were deeply depraved sinners like Adam. Although people like Abraham and David and others are held in high regard in Scripture, Hebrews 11, you know, that text we know as, as the hall of faith, it praises commends Abraham and David among a whole host of others for their faith, and it calls us to emulate their faith as the fathers of our faith. But nevertheless, they were also sinners. Just a brief scan of the genealogy in Luke's text, for the names that we know at least, proves this point. Terah, Abraham's dad, was an idolater. Abraham, he was a liar and a coward. Jacob was a thief and a cheater. Judah consorted with prostitutes. David, he murdered his buddy and then had uh, committed adultery with his buddy's wife. So the one thing each individual from Adam through Joseph have in common is that they're all sinners. And to quote Paul again from that very long text that Bill did such a fantastic job reading this morning, that Romans 5 and 6 text, to quote Paul again from that text this morning, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Friends, one of the common threads in this genealogy, within this story, is that each person in this genealogy died, except for Enoch, but we'll not get into that right now. 
and they died because that's the result of sin. Sin breeds death. That's the one universal, one of the universals that all humanity has in common. We have inherited the sin of Adam. We're sinners in our own right as well. And as a result, we are all going to die. Phil Riken, commenting on our passage this morning, writes this. Because they sinned, they also died. These men in Luke's genealogy are no longer alive. They lived only a short time on earth. One day they were young and full of life, dreaming about the future. But almost before they knew it, they were old and tired, longing for the good old days. Eventually, even the grand old Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old, had to be buried. The wages of sin is death. Thus, there is something tragic about a genealogy like this one. Like the rose on a thorn bush, each new generation flowers in beauty, but in the end, it withers and dies. When we consider what it means to be human, what we have in common in this human experience is that the tragic result of of it is that in the end, we are all going to die. It's all going to come to an end. I don't think we need to talk about this, but death isn't a good thing. Even though we as Christians have incredible optimism at what's going to happen after death, death in itself is still evil. Death is a curse. So as we're faced with the stinging reality, namely that like everybody else in this genealogy, we too will live and die, what do we do with that? Well, one thing I think humanity at large tends to do with that when we're faced with that stinging reality that death is inevitable is we have a desire and a longing to leave something behind, right? We want to leave a legacy. We want to, we, I don't think, I think there's a natural longing in all of us for our time on earth, our finite time on earth to mean something. And so we want to leave a legacy. We want our lives to count for something, right? If you're anything like me, our greatest fear is that we'll reach the end of our lives and wonder, what in the world have I accomplished? Did my life mean anything? And so faced with this haunting prospect, we'll do what we can in the short time that we have to leave something behind, whether big or small, that's going to make a difference. That's going to make a difference and help our loved ones or humanity at large long after we're gone. And that's a good thing in a lot of ways. That's a very other-centered legacy to want to leave. But friends, as much as we desire to leave a legacy, as much as we desire to leave something behind that's going to be a benefit to others, the best legacy we could leave behind isn't an estate, it's not a lump sum of money, nor is even a house for our children to occupy. As good as such things might be, the most important legacy we could leave behind, so to speak, is a life that reflects and is saturated with the grace of Jesus Christ, because only Jesus Christ is the answer to humanity's fundamental problem of sin and death. When we look at the genealogy before us in Luke's text and consider some of these names, the greatest legacy that David left wasn't his building projects in Jerusalem or the expansion of Israel's territory. Those were very good things that benefited God's covenant people. But David's greatest legacy wasn't those things. David's greatest legacy was that God spoke to him, made a covenant with him, and promised that he would raise up an offspring in David's line, who we know as Jesus Christ, who would establish the kingdom of God forever. The greatest legacy 
of Joseph, Jesus's father, wasn't in his uprightness or his righteousness, as Matthew's text highlights for us. His greatest legacy was that he would be called to witness and, and help raise Jesus. And our greatest legacy, friends, isn't in the books that we write. It's not in the inheritance that we leave for our children, as important as those things is, are. And on the negative side, our greatest legacy isn't found in minimizing or covering up our sins and our failures. Our greatest legacy is to live a life that magnifies the one who covers our sin and our failures. Our greatest legacy is that we would live a life that reflects the lordship of Jesus Christ in everything that we do and all that we are. Because without Jesus Christ in this genealogy, this is a rather tragic story. It's a story that has some high points, but it's also one that's saturated with some bleak low points, including inevitable death for every person listed in Luke's genealogy. And without Jesus Christ in our stories, much of the same is true for us. But because Jesus is included in this genealogy, there is hope because he's the one that colors a, a sad and a lowly story with vibrancy and life. And that's exactly what he does to our stories too. So whether you come from brokenness and poverty, or whether you come from aristocracy, with Jesus in our stories, our dead souls are made alive and we have hope. And when we look back through Luke's genealogy through this lens, seeing the important place that Jesus Christ occupies we're also reminded that while, while this is a story of sin and death, this is also a story of promise. Despite the sin of God's people in this genealogy, God's covenant people were still given a promise from God. God still made his covenant with them. And that promise, that covenant, was that God would eventually crush sin and death. And by virtue of what God would do on their behalf, these people, these saints would have hope. And friends, because God has done exactly what he promised to do in Jesus Christ, as God's covenant people, we too have the assurance that death will not have the last word. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, we await the consummation to his kingdom work that the sting of death and sin will no longer persist. Who are we? We're sinners, and we will die but we are also heirs according to the promises of God found in Jesus Christ. Christ has entered the human drama. He's done exactly what he said he would do. He's entered our story. And as a result, death will not have the last word. Resurrection life will. And this leads to our second point. Second, Jesus' baptism and the genealogy to follow tells us who Jesus is. At the start of our passage this morning, we read these astounding verses that highlight for us Jesus' baptism. <clears throat> now, although it's not entirely clear in our passage, the parallel accounts in the other Gospels make it clear that Jesus in our text is submitting to the baptism of John. But if we remember from last week, if John is calling his people, these crowds that come out into the desert, if he's calling them to a repentance baptism, to repent and then undergo baptism as a sign of that repentance, and we correctly maintain that Jesus was sinless, then why is he undergoing a baptism of repentance? Why is he undergoing John's repentance baptism? 
Well, let me direct us for a second to Matthew's gospel for a moment. In Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 3.17, or 3.13-17, through 17, when Jesus comes to be baptized, John uh, effectively has the same kind of reaction as we do. He throws up his hands and says, hold on a second, Jesus. You're coming to be baptized by me? You don't need to be, you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus' response to John is informative. He responds, let it be so now. For thus it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is essentially saying in Matthew's text that in order to fully and completely identify with his people, he has to become one with them. So he submits to this baptism not for his own sake, not because he needs to repent of sin that he doesn't have, but he undertakes this baptism in order to identify with his people so that he could deliver his people. I think Reverend Mike Gloda, when he preached here three weeks ago or so, alluded to this idea in that when we're delivered from our sins, we're not delivered from judgment, but we're delivered through judgment. And so at his baptism, Jesus is identifying himself as the one who will lead God's people through the waters of God's judgment into new creation rest for the people of God. So the sinless son of God is identifying with his people in order to save his people. And just how Jesus will deliver his people through the waters of God's judgment is subtly seen in the declaration from God. Remember, we see when Jesus ascends out of the waters in his baptism, a voice comes from heaven, and it's the voice of God. And he declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Thus far in Luke's gospel, we've heard the identity of Jesus, who he is, articulated on the lips of multiple people. We've heard from the angel Gabriel who this Jesus would be. We've heard from a whole host of angels. Remember at the birth of Jesus, when the angels appear to the shepherd, they announce who this Jesus will be. We've heard from Simeon and Anna, these prophetic expressions of praise, who this Jesus will be. We've heard from Jesus himself declare in the temple who exactly, he, who exactly he was and what his ministry and what his mission will be. But now God the Father speaks and the heavens are rolled back to make way for his authoritative voice. Throughout scripture, when God's voice thunders from above, good news for God's people doesn't always accompany it. Sometimes when God speaks and his voice thunders from heaven, it's a message of judgment. It's a message to repent. It's a scary thing when God speaks a lot of times in scripture. But when the father speaks of his son, there's only good news. The declaration that Jesus is the beloved son with whom God is well pleased, as one commentator notes, is a, is a description or a declaration that encompasses the totality of Jesus's life and ministry. It's a declaration first that looks back to what Jesus has already accomplished. The eternal son of God became incarnate and had already lived 30 sinless years in communion with the father. And this declaration then looks to the present at this point in Jesus's life and ministry. And it tells us that God is pleased with his son simply by virtue of who he is. And then this declaration looks forward to Jesus' ministry to follow. And specifically, it looks forward to the fact that Jesus will deal with the problem of sin and death 
through his very own suffering. You see, this declaration from the mouth of God, particularly when God says to to his son, with you, I am well pleased. God himself is actually referencing his very own word here. He's actually referencing the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42.1. And he's alluding to what we call or what we know as the servant motif in Isaiah. You see, in the latter parts of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 40 through 55, the prophet Isaiah describes in four different locations this figure known as the servant. These texts are sometimes referred to as the servant songs of Isaiah. And this servant is a vague figure in the Isaiah context. It's not entirely clear who this servant is, but it is clear that this servant holds a special relationship to God. And it's the servant's task to, to, um, to serve Israel and the nations through bringing justice to them and also by atoning for sin through suffering. So when God declares to Jesus in our text, with you I am well pleased, God is also looking forward to the climax of Jesus' ministry when Jesus will assume the role of the suffering servant who atones for the sins of his people through his very own suffering and death. Jesus will take upon himself the wrath of God. He will lead his people through the judgment waters by drinking the full cup of God's wrath down to its dredges, the full cup that you and I deserve. And out of the suffering and death of God's son comes his own resurrection and new life for his people. He leads us through judgment and he leads us into new life. And we see a glimpse of this new life that our God will lead us to, indicated at Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The Spirit, the text tells us in Luke 3.22, descends upon Jesus like a dove. Well, this image, if you can just really just milk that image of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove, it draws us back to Genesis 1 and the creation account. We're at creation, the Holy Spirit, if you remember, was hovering over the face of the waters just before creation. So do you see the implications here for Jesus' ministry? With Jesus, not only are our sins atoned for through suffering and death, but in Jesus, new creation is taking place. This is why the Apostle Paul can say something like in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The very reason we can be called, friends, new creation, a new creation, a new creature, the very reason we can be called that is because Jesus was the suffering servant who atoned for our sins and rose victoriously. He suffered sin and death, and through his resurrection, we find the first fruits of this new creation life. Who is Jesus? He's the victorious king who brings his new creation kingdom for his people. In conclusion then, after the account, creation account in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, we know, come onto the scene. They're called by God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to rule and subdue it. But Adam fails miserably in this task and the creation, not just mankind, but the entire cosmos is thrown into chaos. It's thrown into sin. But in Jesus Christ, God's new creation program is underway. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And as a result, the blessings that could have been Adam's 
are now Christ's. And it's also ours as those who are in Christ, as those who have been attached to Jesus Christ and united to him in his suffering and his death and also in his resurrection. As those who have gone through the baptism waters with Jesus Christ, that new creation work is also ours and we can be called new creatures. God was going to create anew and he would do so through Jesus Christ, the new Adam. In Jesus Christ, we meet this new Adam, who rather than clouding our story with sin and death, he's revived it to life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus Christ, and that you, from the very beginning, you had a plan. You knew that Adam would sin and fall And you've crafted this story of redemption, this immaculate story to culminate in Jesus Christ. And as your saints, as part of your church, we look forward to the day. We look forward to partaking in the new creation rest in its fullness and in its entirety because Christ has entered into our genealogy. And because of that, we have hope. We pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.